We might see, but we're not hearing. Okay. We have seen um, that David has escaped Saul once again, and Saul, in his anger, had punished the priests. He'd slaughtered the priesthood, uh, and he then went on, and Doeg, the Edomite, had slaughtered the men, women, and children, and even the cattle. That was how angry uh, we'd left Saul last week as we journeyed through the, through the book. David is safe and uh, in a hiding in the cave. He's got his parents moved to Moab. And he must be bewildered about what's happening. And then there is one priest who escapes the slaughter of Saul. And this is where we left it last week. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Athitub, named Abithur, escaped and fled to join David. And he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Notice that Saul, although he wasn't the one that had wielded the sword itself, he was still accountable, still responsible. And you've got to come to a passage like that in verse 21, and it should leap off the page and you should ask yourselves, why did God allow that? You've got to, you know, I mean, this is, this is real life events. The people are totally innocent, and yet God, who could have stopped it, has actually allowed it. These are difficult passages, aren't they? I remember handing over to Kay last week and she said, it's so difficult to get up and worship after that. And it is, isn't it? You know, but neither should we be naive. This is in the word of God. This is the narrator wants us to see the story. And somehow, even amongst verse 21, God's purposes are rolling through history. Rolling through. And, and look, let's grow up. Shall I, shall I give you some meat this morning? There are many things in life that you will never understand. That doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It just, it just means from our perspective, some stuff in this life goes off which we have no explanation for. Actually, if you're truthful, there's lots of stuff. That there's, I mean, let's be blunt. If I was God, it wouldn't happen that way. If you were God, it wouldn't happen that way. But the trouble with that statement is neither you nor me are God, and it does happen that way. And we've just somehow got to accept it and learn to see with eyes of faith, even in the difficult times. Verse 22, And then David said to Abithar, That day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Of course, David isn't, but he feels like that. He, he feels responsible. How, how does David just, how does David feel every time he looks at him? Every time he looks at Abitha, how does he actually, how does he reconcile his, the events of that, of that happening? If only he'd not gone to the priest then all these people would have been alive. What a reminder. And, and I'll tell you this now, you can certainly take this out of it, whatever you do affects other people. None of us walk this world alone. Our choices, our decisions, our influences affect someone else. For the good, for the bad. And just because God doesn't intervene how we want him to intervene, doesn't change any of that at all. Has that built you up this morning? Do you all feel edified and super that you came to church? It gets better. Okay.
So he says to him, stay with me, don't be afraid. That's interesting because David's shown a little bit of fear lately. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors. Keilah is in Judah. We know David had received a, a, a prophetic word from the prophet of Gad and he'd gone from the cave into Judah. And these are under attack. And let me just explain this. The Philistines were good at this. They, they, they would know when the harvest was taken. They would come raiding parties. We see it all the way through the book of Judges. That, that they, they would come when the Israelites had gathered in the harvest and raid the threshing floors. The threshing floors were the place where they beat the grain, they threw it up into the air, and then the wind would remove the husks and you'd be left with the grain. There are two problems when someone comes and steals your grain. Firstly, in this society, you have no food. You don't nip down to Tesco's or Morrison's. You are up the creek without a paddle. And the other thing that we sometimes forget is this. If they steal all the grain, you don't have next season's crop either. This is a disaster in anyone's life when these comes, comes raiding. And so David, having spent time in reflection, I believe, in, in the cave of Adullam, knows now one of the secrets to life. And it's not rocket science, it's something we can all practice, and I heartedly encourage you, plead with you, and everything else with you, look, do what David does. He inquired of the Lord. Now, David's an Old Testament king, king in waiting, albeit, and he needs a man to go through. He needs a priest. You and I don't. And when you've got decisions in life, and listen, I stand before you as a master. If there were certificates on the wall, mine would have a PhD behind me of messing my life up. I am hopeless at it. I just can't do my own life. And I reached that conclusion when I bought a stupid farm with a disease, spent all my money, got divorced, two heart attacks, and I thought, that'll do. I pack in. 47 years of incompetence of making my own decisions. What a great way to actually say, it's time to start inquiring of the Lord a bit more often. Do you know when I had this big parcel of money, I never asked God because he might tell me what to do with it. And don't we do that in life? Don't we think, well, I know I should. I know it would be a good idea to actually ask his opinion. But then he might actually speak. And if he speaks something I don't want to hear, well, let's miss the middle of man out. Well, David has got there and he's in his early 20s and he knows now, before I'm taking the next step, I'm asking God. And so he inquires of the Lord. He will be using the priest, and in verse 6 we see, we see how he does it. He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him by text, Go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. It seems that way, though, doesn't it? It's so clear. Actually, it's not that clear. Sometimes, believers think it's that clear. The way the narrator words it, it will only be yes and no answers. I've got to say this, look. As a New Testament believers, how do we 
inquire of God? Where's your first line of approach? Someone, come on, let's sing it out. The Bible, the Word of God. It's got to be, hasn't it? Let me, let me tell you this. God is never going to contradict his word. So if it's in his word, and you know his word, actually you've already inquired of him. And that's a great place to be. Where else might we inquire of God? Prayer, of course it is. You come before God. Uh, you know, and let's be, let's be honest. Don't ask some silly questions. There are some questions you don't need to ask. But for some big decisions, prayer... Studying the word of God. And maybe a third way as well. How, how might you ask a third way? Counsel. The counsel of the saints. People whom you will trust to give you sound advice. I, I have a couple of people in my life, a couple of pastors, who if I have a really difficult situation, I go to them and I trust them to give me their take on it. doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it, but I do have that safety net. Do you know why I chose these two? Because I look at their life and I think, your life's working, mate. Your life is in accord with my understanding of what the Word of God is. It's absolutely pointless going to someone whose life's no better than mine, is it? If they're not walking the talk, why are you asking them? That's just, just insightful. Anyway, back to David. He receives the instructions, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now, he's not the king. The first thing I would be looking at is this. Why isn't Saul defending the city? He's the king, he's the one with the army. David's got 400 ragtag bobs, disgruntled people. And he shows his shepherd heart. He knows what's happening in this city. And he says, right, I'll go and do something about it. What a great example for us. If we know that something needs doing, why don't we do it? Don't have to wait for anyone else to do it. Why don't we do it? We're representing our God. We're already fairly close to Saul. How much more, then, if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Look, David, we followed you this far, and we're already in danger. Now you're asking us to go that one step further. Do you know, God will always ask you to go that one step further. Because we have a habit in life of settling. And when we settle, we miss what God has got for us. So, David, being a good shepherd and a good leader, says, listen, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to God and just check I heard the first time. Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah. Now, this is the difference, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. Well, God's with him. David knows that it's, um, it's success before you even set out. It is fantastic when you know God's with you, when you're going through life. When you, when you can actually know for sure, when you've seen evidence and you know you're on the right path, that actually God's with you, he's leading you. And so they go. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and he saved the people. What a great example of what a saviour does. He saves the people. Anyone else think of another saviour? Yeah. Mel? Good, I'm glad you're there. Okay. Jesus is a saviour. And this David is displaying a like-minded heart, shall we say. And then he sticks this verse in just to explain what has just happened. 
Abitha, son of Himelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. There's lovely irony here, look. Saul has killed all the other priests, uh, uh, the priests of Nob. He's wiped them out. One escapes. Is that good luck? Is that good fortune? Who might it be? The grace of God. You know, that's wonderful, Tanya. The grace of God, the very person trying to destroy David, actually puts David's means of communicating with God into David's hands. That's providential. God works in all of our lives like, that way. Can you look at your own life and say, the providence of God is moving? Or is it just circumstances? Or do you not see? I'll give you a little, little funny story. I met Kay through a dating agency. And um, when I joined the dating agency, she said to me, you won't be on the shelf long. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, this now is hot stuff. There's a, there's a shortage of guys, you know, who are, who are, who are believers. Particularly good-looking ones. <laughs> Admittedly, this was a telephone conversation, but it nonetheless took place. And so, this lady who ran the dating agency sent me the details of some ladies, and uh, eventually I get Kay's profile. And of course, being led of the Spirit of the Lord, I communicated to the dating agency that I would like to meet. I would like to meet Kay. Do you know what she did? She didn't jump at the chance. <laughs> hey, and I was gone. Another one on the scene, and I was already communicating with this lady. So when Kay's week passed, and she told the dating agency, yes, well, horror of horrors, I was off the shelf. It's, anyway... You snooze, you lose. You snooze, you lose. <laughs> so, I talked with this woman for about a month, and she was nice, and um, she lived in Birmingham, and we met once, and um, there were some issues, shall we say. She reminded me of my ex-wife, and she had a bit of a temper and everything like that. So, providentially, now watch how my life changes. Right? My daughter's out riding a horse one day. The horse throws her and she's suffering from concussion. My other daughter is down with her husband and I thought, well, we're 20 miles outside of Leicester. By the time the ambulance gets here, I can get to hospital quicker than that. So we piled her into the car. We shoot along the A47 towards Leicester and I communicated to this lady in Birmingham and I said to her, look, I'm not going to be around for a while, don't, don't bother texting me or anything, I'm going to be with my daughter, she's going there, and I also communicated with my ex-wife she lived in the nursing home in Leicester, and I said to her, can you go down to the A&E, can you uh, check Jane in, get her moved through the, the procedures, even before we get there, she's come off her horse believe me, we were used to going to hospital with her she was always coming off the horses but on this day this lady in Birmingham began to throw really get quite nasty and I said to her there's nothing between me and the ex-wife that's over finished 
But, you know, she wasn't happy that I was even in the same hospital as her. And so I gave her an hour. I said, look, you calm down. We'd only met once. Okay. I phoned her back after an hour. She was like that. Okay. Been you. Gone. So I'm back on the shelf. You get the picture? So then we gave Mrs. B another attempt. She didn't hang around that week. (laughs) Fifteen wonderful years later. Okay. I might get into trouble when I get home, admittedly. But fifteen years later, she's everything a man would ever want in a wife. You see how I'm getting out the hole now. Okay, She is, look. But I believe wholeheartedly that God was redirecting my life. Did he make Jane's horse rear up and throw her off? I don't know. Jane's fine. And I got married to the right lady. I believe that's God. I have no problem believing that is God. Because he, he knows sometimes, you know what? He's got a great, a great purpose for people's lives, a great calling on all of our lives. And sometimes he just needs to redirect. And I, we can trust in that with God. That when we mess up, if our hearts are in the right place, then actually God's still at work. God is directing his children. And that's what he's done there. David speaking to God through the priest. Let's see what Keilah does next. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has delivered him into my hands for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Understand this, this is the man who's wiped out a town, wiped out God's priests and he still thinks God's directing. Do you think Saul's right? Just because someone says God said this, or God does this, doesn't mean actually God's done anything. And Christians can mess this about so dramatically. Saul's using all the right lingo, but he is totally off the planet. God is not directing his life. And he told him that a long while ago. What Saul should have done, is actually gone to Keilah and said, you know what David, you're behaving like the king. I'm going to hand it over to you teach you my ways, teach you the good bits and I'm going to be submitting to your kingship. But of course he doesn't, he's in sin. Verse 8, Saul called up his forces for the battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David. Keilah means citadel or city of, anyway, it's, it's a, got one gate in with a big door. And when David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abitha the priest, Bring the ephod. That's how they communicated. All right, Abitha, we need to know what God is going to say on this matter. Let's see what they do. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and to destroy the the town on account of me. Question God. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? The Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said two words, yep, he will. Isn't that horrible? See what he asks again. Again, David asks, 
Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. David is exactly where God wants him to be. It was God who sent him there. He asked him, he said, look, do I need to go down and attack the Philistines? Yes. Now God has got him in a city which is going to come under Saul's army. Wow. I feel a bit sorry for Keilah because they might have known what Saul has done recently to the city of Nob. He's killed all the people and everything. But they had a choice. They actually had a choice whether or not they actually stood by David or whether they surrendered David up. Sometimes in this life, we have only tough choices, don't we? Not easy ones. What would you have done in that situation? David saved them. They would have lost the food, gone into famine, no harvest for the future years. Would you have stood by the guy who saved you? And silence came the echoing reply. We don't know, do we? We don't know. So, David does something. He doesn't wait around for God. He says, so David and his men, about 600 now, whether that means 200 of the Keelers joined them or whether the numbers have just been increasing, they left Keelah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keelah, he did not go there. Right, so the city is spared. Move it on. David stayed in the wilderness, strongholds, and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. I don't like Ziphs. We'll be explaining what a Ziph is. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Notice that. God's providence keeping David safe. And while David was at Aresh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. I love verse 16 and 17. Saul's son, Jonathan, went to, went to David at Aresh and helped him to find strength in God. That's fascinating. What, what do you see in that? What, what's just happened? Fantastic, Kenny. Do you, do you see that? Why? Is it that easy that Jonathan knows where he is? Maybe Jonathan's been directed by God. He can go and find him. But Saul's army. Army can't find him. That's God, isn't it? That'll be God. And then when he comes there, look, when we're going to look at this, he comes and he puts his arm around him, he gives him a little cuddle and pulls his cheeks and things. No, 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 no. That's not why Jonathan's come. He helps him find strength in God. It's good to have friends, but it's even better to have friends who help you find strength in God. Oh, I'm glad we agree. That's really encouraging. <laughs> I'm teasing, Ken. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. One of the things I think that David is guilty of is forgetting the promises of God that God has made to him. And we can do that. If you've really heard from God, I'm always amazed how many times God changes his mind. Does that fly over someone's head? Okay, watch this. God, God's told me this. Oh, it's difficult. 
God's changed his mind. Don't do it. You get yourself so confused. You put your line in the sand. You check it. Check it with the word of God. Check it with prayer. Check it with the wise counsel of the saints. But when you've made that decision, there is no point in revisiting it. Because one of the things that we do is this. We are guilty of looking at externals all the time. We're guilty of looking at, oh, life is difficult. Therefore, God didn't really say that. Where do you get that from in the Bible? It's more often difficult when you're doing God's will. More often difficult when you... Actually, sometimes, if it's not difficult, I've got to question whether it's God. Notice this as well. David has lost sight of his destiny. He was told as a child he would be king. And he hasn't yet been king. Therefore, all the chasing around the wilderness, all the hiding, all the mistakes that he's made, he's still got to be king. If God has said it, and your heart is in the right direction, you'll be king, David. Sometimes, you and I can be guilty of losing the sight of our destiny. You've got a question, what is your destiny? What is God's plan for your life? I'm an expert, 47 years before I decided. No, yeah, 47 years before I actually agreed what his plan for my life was. I'm an expert at the mistakes. The ones that you make, I'll have already done. The two of them made a covenant. That's the, the renewal of the friendship and the agreement before the Lord. And then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. This is the last time they meet until heaven. They don't know that. But how sad. The next time we meet Jonathan, he's on the battlefield dying. But the key word here is this. He's gone home, mission accomplished. The calling on Jonathan's life was never to be king. He knew that early on. The calling on his life was to get alongside the real king and actually strengthen him. And when that was complete, your time's up. Move on, please. Here's the Ziphs. The Ziphonites went up to Saul at Gibeth and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Aresh on the hills of Halika, south of Jezimon? I love these names. Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving them into your hands. Do you see why I don't like Ziphs? Backstabbers. Do you know this is his, this is his clan? This is, these, are, these Ziphs are from Judah. They should have been loyal to him. Saul, actually, is from Benjamin, a different tribe. Ziphs always go by the eyesight. They never go by faith. Let me say that again. A Ziff goes by eyesight. They see the real king. They see the real event. They don't listen to what God is doing. You don't want Ziphs around. Do you know sometimes you get Ziphs in church? Ooh. Ziffs. Why do they do that? Verse 21, Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Really? Look, I can speak lingo. Oh, God bless you. I know I've slaughtered 84 priests and men, women and children, but Lord bless you. 
Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he's very crafty. He knows that. Find out about all the hiding places he uses. Come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. And if he's in the area, I'll track him down among all the clans of Judah. Saul is clapping his hands. Saul believes God is putting David right into his hands again. Saul's a bit thick, isn't he? Is that a technical term? A bit daft? Okay. So they set out and went to Ziph, ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Mahon, in the Arabah, south of Jezimun. Can you picture this from an aerial point of view? Saul and his men began the search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock... Notice the word rock, and stayed in the desert of Maon. And when Saul heard this, he went to the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Let's see what happens. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side. There's a song there, isn't there? They'll be coming round the mountain. Okay, just a little ad lib. Okay. You can picture this. There's Saul and his army. There's David and his 600 men. And they're hurrying to get away from Saul. And I think Saul is closing in. Saul and his forces were closing in on David. Maybe some going that way and some going the other way. Ready to capture them. Just at the right time. Look what happens. A messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are attacking the land, are raiding the land. Lucky break? Some of you are not sure. God. In other words... The Philistines were at the beginning of the chapter and they were the baddies and David whooped them. That's what the Hebrew says. And then, at the end of the chapter, God uses the very people who are not his people to rescue his his king. You've got to say this, look, if you believe this stuff, if, and it should be I do believe this stuff, we really should take chill pills. Do you, do you see what I mean? And look, David has some rough times and David will mess up and he won't always inquire of the Lord. But when you're on song with God, he'll even use a Philistine to get you out of the mess. That, I find that really reassuring or is that just me? Hmm. Not sure. PowerPoint next, please. Oh, that. You can go off, people, can't you? I will pronounce it for you. And then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines and that is why they call this place the Rock of Escape. (laughs) Right? That's why they call it the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. When I see the word rock in the Bible, who do I think of? Yeah, come on. Building our lives. How many times has we built around the rock and he just gets us out of the mess we get ourselves in? That's what a lot of the Bible is about. I haven't just made that up. That's what the translation is. They call the rock of escape. All right. I want a little one slide. Look, this is, this is a recap of where we've been before I actually end on a good note. David, betrayed by Ziphs. 
the Ziffs had no reason to do that. They're just looking by sight. Ziffs walk by sight, not by faith. They judge by the wrong standard. Yep. Betrayed by Keeler. Look, there are people around who will take, take, take and never, then never return. David's not angry at them, by the way. There's no mention of David punishing them. They just found themselves in, in a difficult situation and they didn't have the faith. They didn't have the faith to get behind the man of God that they should have done. And then there's this. You like my fancy work? I did this this morning. You, most of you will be asleep when this was done. Encouraged by Jonathan. Wouldn't it be great if we had a church full of Jonathans? You think of some of the difficult times that we go through and you get a guy alongside you, not a keeler or a ziff. If someone starts turning around, let's introduce something in church and say, you're a ziff. <laughs> Next week you'll have forgotten, you'll say, you're a zit. <laughs> it's the same principle, it's fine. Different translation. But what about actually turning around and saying, you're my Jonathan. They're really good people to have in life. And, and Jonathans have a way of not only pointing you to God, but they have a way of actually reminding of you of your destiny. You have a destiny. If, if we believe this, and I know most of you do, the difficult times don't change anything. They hurt. They're difficult. We will all experience them. But your destiny is your destiny. And I think there's, a, there's, there's a, an obligation almost on us, I would say, to find out what God wants for us. To find out the walk that God is asking you to do. Maybe it's the only thing that you can do. Maybe no one else can do it. And I want to... Um, is it the video next, Matt? It was early morning. <laughs> All right, put the psalm at one three nine. Thank you. Look, this is you. This this is who you are. For you, I could go around the room. For Stephanie, for Amy, for Kirsty, for Clive, for whatever, whatever, whatever. For you, created my innermost being. You, sorry, obviously God knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I, there you go, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. No? Yeah? Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What a, what a verse this is. God, how precious to me are your thoughts. God, how vast is the sum of them. Do you know God's thinking of us? Sometimes it feels like he doesn't. Do you, anyone ever experience that where you think, God, have you forgot me? God, have you got amnesia this morning? My world's fallen apart. He hasn't forgotten us. David wrote this, by the way. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. That's who we are. Do you want to see a, a 
picture of who we are? Yeah, I'll do the lights.
Thank you, Matt. Isn't it beautiful? I once said, and don't be offended, I once said the principal of the Bible College said this, six million sperms and you're it. One gets through. And that should stun us because he creates he creates a child with a purpose. He creates a child with a destiny. And then asks us to find the destiny. You know what? The sad thing for the whole world is this, look. Most people don't find that destiny. Most people will not even find God. Won't even recognise what you've just seen. But those that do, it's got to do something in here. When you begin to understand, you're not an accident. God designed you. God not only designed us, he gives us a unique abilities. We're all different. For his glory, for his purpose. That's why we need the Jonathans. We need the Jonathans when life is tough, not to put an arm round. I like putting arms round, some of you. And... You know what I mean? Okay. But put an arm around his... There's a time when that's appropriate. There's another time when someone just needs to speak words of wisdom into, into our lives. And just remind us, well, hang on a minute. God says this. Look what God says. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Look, he knew today was going to happen. God chose us. Before he even made anything. And he chose us to be blameless in his sight. Do we get that? We are blameless in his sight. No rubber there. Right? Don't change the word of God. God sees me blameless. Not sinless. But I am blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption, that's Jesus, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, all of them, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He's just reminded us twice about this wonderful thing called grace. And what does he do? He lavishes it on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in, or purposed in Christ. The church. Do you know what? This is not man's invention. You're a strange bunch, aren't you? You know what I think? And I'm part of it. And it's supposed to be a strange bunch. Because when people see why we come and worship and put our hands up and everything, actually we're displaying something of what they need to see. If we were all the same, it's just a club. My brother plays golf and he goes down to the golf club on a Sunday. We're not a club. We're here for a purpose. Let's move on to 1 Peter and I'll finish with this. It's alright, just come out of that, Matt. Just to speed it up. This was the very verse of the first sermon in this building. But you are a chosen race. You! A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I feel pretty special. 
I do, I feel special. You want to be special people? You get no more special than that. So that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Do you know what? That's what, exactly what Tina did. Tina, when you came out to the front, you gave God the glory for God working in your children's lives. You declaring the excellencies of a living God. Brilliant. Brilliant. Look, this is who we used to be, for you were once not a people. Yeah. 33 years I was not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what is mercy? Not getting what we do deserve. Finish it off. Oh, that's it. Okay. We could have gone on and on and on. Let's wrap it all up. Do you feel special today? I'll ask it a bit louder. Do you feel special today? Then I have succeeded in this hours and hours of labour that I willingly give for a very small salary to make you feel special on a Sunday. Because God loves us. And... Just for the record and for the tape, I'm no longer on the shelf.